Welcome back to the Reset Rebel podcast with me, Joe Yule, and we are back in the Hub Studios this week, and I've invited a very special guest to join us, a man I've seen many, many times soundtracking sunsets all over the island. Pete Gooding is a club DJ, music producer, and radio presenter, but way beyond any name or title, he's a massive, massive music fan. In fact, Pete is a music man. Thanks to his broad musical taste, deep musical knowledge and boundless energy and enthusiasm. So I'm very, very happy and excited to uh, invite the man himself onto the podcast. Pete, thank you so much for, for coming here to chat to me today. My pleasure. And you read my bio like you weren't reading a bio. I was very impressed with your reading ability there. Well done. Thank, I was just trying to sort of fake the fact that I was actually reading it. Thank you for calling me out on that. <laughs> you know, I've been obviously thinking about inviting you onto the podcast for a while. And you are one of those DJs that's kind of, you know, created this kind of sunset soundtracking thing, as well as all the other amazing kind of gigs that you do do. But what, you know, what is it that makes you know, that moment so special on an island like this? Um, firstly, I don't like making people dance. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very first box ticked. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, I used to come here on holiday when I was young, so I used to sit and watch Jose do it uh, in the beginning of the 90s. So I just always loved this thing that was different to what you heard in a club. Club music's always within reason I found a bit dull and it's restrictive because once people are dancing you're kind of stuck with them you know you've got to keep them there and that limits within reason um, somebody who has as broad a musical taste as I do you know I would often could be playing anywhere you know maybe back in the day somewhere like space and I'd have these tendencies to play something a bit weirder with lower energy and almost stop people dancing really so um, now I, I, DJing isn't my job so I, the only DJing I do is generally very deliberately more alternative where I can just not have to try and make anybody dance and play you know weird, more weird and wonderful stuff really what, what's the fear of stopping people from dancing because I, I, I did actually pop into Akasha last night for a night I hadn't really researched very well I just dragged my friend out for just one hour of power before bedtime and thought I need to shake off some stuff that's been going on this weekend to do with my hacked Instagram account, which we might talk about later, but hopefully not. Um, and I thought, yeah, I'm just going to go and dance for an hour and, and maybe that will sort me out. But like, yeah, something very strange happened and the dance floor was li- literally empty within an hour of like me being there. And it, it felt, you know, like, ooh, I wonder what's happened there. And it went from sort of, you know, African drummers to a DJ who was amazing, but the kind of set was just like all over the place like one minute it was house and the next minute it was like tribal beats and the next minute it was like African gospel music I think that's the thing is I within reason when, once people are dancing in a club you know I used to one of my favourite clubs I used to play it was uh, Renaissance sort of, again back in the 90s sort of early noughties and you could play super deep and cool because it was a really you know underground credible uh, event to play at but once so op- playing first was always appealing because you could play sort of weirder stuff before anybody was really trying to dance, set the mood in the room. But if you were like playing the main slot, I kind of was, 
it was restrictive you know it's like once they're going at a certain pace you've kind of got to keep it going and that for me took out a lot of the really interesting records and it left left me with a lot of what i perceived as more functional records that do a job whereas i i'm not always drawn that heavily to those kind of records at the end of the day so for me playing when you know i love playing in a bar i used to love playing at mambo um when i got the job there you know it was i could play a little bit of everything so i would play maybe you know you play sunset and then you play very mellow deep house while the sun was sort of you know the sky was changing color so it was very atmospheric and then you know I might play disco soul funk or a little bit of early hip hop just whatever i felt like it might be half an hour of this half an hour of that i just you know play for myself really whereas once everyone else is dancing you're kind of playing for the audience to some degree which isn't something i was is less appealing isn't that the very definition of what Balearic music is? It's not, you know, one thing or another. It's being able to kind of cross genre in that realm of like soundtracking something specific. And I think that's exactly, as you pointed out at the very beginning, was what Jose, obviously, Padilla, was an absolute don at. And there's not probably that many people left on the island in some ways that are going to be able to kind of like jump back in that kind of box, really. I mean, I think, you know, you set the bar pretty high. Well, the thing is, um, I, you know, I mean, I used to manage Jose and he was my favourite DJ ever, but he couldn't mix. I mean, it, it was appalling technically at mixing. but he, And I remember recreating one of his tapes perfectly and it lost all its character. <laughs> it didn't, it wasn't about that. It was for me, it was a mate. He understood the music better than anybody for me. Um, that was his ability. But yeah, I think what, what I find without meaning to sound sort of old and boring is that I find clubs are very restrictive now in the sense that you hear one sub-genre all night. So if you go to this person's party, you get the same sound all night. And in my opinion, that just discounts all the other good records you could have also played. You know, that's my opinion. But whereas it didn't used to be like that, you would hear a little bit of everything and that was normal. And for me, that is more interesting. But, you know, as a manager, as what I do now, you can't market someone who you can't sell someone who does a bit of this and a bit of that because no one understands what it is. So I find myself advising people often with, with an apology coming at the same time, explaining that it is restrictive, but you need to stand for something. So that's why it's gone the way it's gone. I did prefer it being the way it used to be. That's, but it was also very normal to do. Like when I, I guess when I started DJing in Solihull, where I'm from, you know, I would be, say, the DJ at the local, I guess, main high street club before it wasn't specifically cool, but you would play a bit of everything. It was normal. So I also started DJing in that way as well before I'd heard Jose or Alfredo. So hearing them, you know, you could, a lot of people would say it was just unprofessional and a mishmash of too many things. I just quite liked it. Um, so I guess I can see why I always DJed that way because it, uh, it kind of inspired me to, that was how, what inspired me to be a DJ. I remember... I remember once trying to get a job. Um, my dream club was Renaissance, which I dreamed of being able to play at. I used to go there every week with my friends in like, 1992 in Mansfield, hearing Sasha every week. It was incredible. And um, I met Jeff, who owns Renaissance here, when I was playing at Mambo, and I became friends with him, and he offered me a job, and I had to make him a tape and take it to his office in Newcastle under Lyon. And I, I was so proud of this tape I did. And he went... It sort of starts like Roger Sanchez, ends up a bit like Danny Tanaglia. Which one are you? And I was like, oh, shit. I knew the right answer was 
to say Danny Tanaglia because I knew that was a bit more in line with Renaissance. But I couldn't, even when I was trying to be specific, I, I wasn't very good even then at doing that because I, I liked a bit of everything. So it's always been very hard for me to, you know, narrowly put it into one box, which again is why I like playing in a bar or playing Sunset over playing in a club. So that, yeah. In terms of like when you say that, you know, you have to almost apologise for this mishmash of sound. I mean, just going back to that Balearic thing again, I feel like, you know, for example, um, John Satrincha has done a pretty good job seemingly by the looks of Facebook and Instagram. I know they say don't believe the hype and all that, but ultimately he seems to have exported what he does here and did extremely well for all those years. Not just at Satrincha, but, you know, he had a lot of other stuff going on as well. I feel like, you know, listening to his sets at, Satrincha again and again and even the ones that he made as mixtapes and his annual um, kind of compilations that he would put together and I think that is by again it's very definition this this he has managed to kind of like package that and kind of sell it and take it elsewhere so I think I think that Balearic sound is marketable I guess it's just a it is a very strange thing that is very unique to this island strangely it's just a niche thing yeah I, I love John um I mean, for the last few years, well, not the last couple of years, but we would always go to, the, me and John would play at the same place in Bali. So we'd spend a few weeks with John every year. And yeah, John's fantastic. And I think, again, I would, with that, I can't speak for him, but I think similarly, I, I think there's lots of DJs that, you know, I really think are fantastic, especially ones that play here. And I think we just view there's good and bad music. So you just play the good stuff, regardless of, you know, I mean, I don't even try and, group stuff together too much i can play immensely erratically i just play what i want to hear next but yes you can i guess john has packaged that really really well and you know lots of people do i I think that's the thing um you know i I even remember when i was managing jose he had a fear that the idea of being famous for what he was famous for meant no one would book him to play in a club and there was of course more you know there were more opportunities to if you cancel out all the clubs you were cutting yourself from a lot of opportunities so uh, he had a fear that he was worried about being seen as a chill out DJ when he invented the genre so of course he was but um but it is you know again it's that thing everybody like if you think of any something I do with a lot of the artists I develop over the years you know you can pick any big DJ's name you say Carl Cox you'd say Techno David Getty you'd say EDM Sasha you'd have said progressive you know anyone who made it you could almost define them it doesn't mean that's what they did but there's generally something they met they communicated something quite clearly and you could define that by whereas I would have always thought not that I would be as well known as any of the people I've just mentioned obviously but um no one would have a clue what I did you know I used to make I made house music in the beginning because I was on Renaissance's label quite a lot. Then I made a lot of chill out. I made some pop. I made drum and bass. I made some Latin jazz. Like I, it was so confusing even for me to be honest. But it was quite a true reflection of how I DJ'd. <laughs> so it was, um, yeah. Just I guess that's what I like doing, and I guess that's what John likes doing, and lots, lots of other people like. You know, people like Pippi are fantastic. You know, I love listening to Pippi, and he can play a great house set, a great sunset, pretty much anything. You know. So I think it's, um, you know, it can be done. It's just, a, you know, it does make sense in some respects to kind of group the records together. If you're going to play house for an hour, then keep the tempos relatively similar. I mean, I guess I tend to try and play just records, really. But when I'm not playing records, you've, of course, got the tempo in the key. So I often 
might select records because they're near each other in key, but then they might be nowhere near each other in tempo. So it just comes together however it comes together, really. I don't worry too much about it. I don't see it as my job, so I'm not concerned about how I put music together. I just kind of play what I fancy hearing next most of the time. So how did Jose Padilla get to where he got to without being able to mix? I mean, I find that quite fascinating. Um, well, I mean, I don't think that was the product he was selling necessarily. I mean, there are some DJs who are, say, so incredible at technically that that's their thing. You know, everybody has an angle of what, what it is they're very good at. You know, Jose told me, um, we did an interview once for a magazine and I was helping him write it out and he used to invite friends around to his house in Cala Desmoreau and he was just playing records, not sort of DJing as such, but um, and he said his friends loved the music and he made some tapes of them and then someone sold one in the market and then Ramon bought, bought it and played it in Café Del Mar and he heard it in there and told him it was his tape and he got the job there. You know, it's very accidental and it just happened to work in that place. Um, so he just had a, a taste in music that suited that. So timing, luck, many other things, you know. Um, so I think also, it, you know, again, I used to talk to him about it a lot because it was fascinating to me, but he said it was quite hard to get a lot of music here through a certain area because, uh, because of Franco. Like certain types of music weren't allowed here. You couldn't get mainstream music. So you would end up piecing together a lot of more obscure styles of music. So if you, you know, maybe Jose would play a flamenco record next to a, a new age record from the mid 80s next to an electronica record, a Latin jazz record, an acid jazz record, a deep house record. And again, just played records he liked and that created the genre in a way. So I guess a bit like Frankie Knuckles, in a sense, he created a genre that didn't exist. It wasn't called Chill Out before. I mean, it's a bit of a lame name in a way. It's just a very eclectic mixture of music that sounded good whilst the sun was setting. You know, I guess if, you know, it's quite a natural thing. If the sun's setting, I'm not going to play some heavy metal. Some people might like to, you know, you, you can just, it's like um, if you're putting music to a film, if you see the view, it's suggestive of being quite relaxed, mellow, quite melancholy maybe so I think he just naturally understood that and he did that and that's that's what it became you know and that massively in inspired how I DJ and I guess a lot of people here even a lot of people don't know that's inspired them but it, it still will have you know people still DJ you know there's a lot of records I used to play that I heard in Ibiza in the late 80s I didn't know they were records Jose played way before that um, you know before he played at Café Del Mar you just I guess they're records I subconsciously heard and just bought them and played them. I didn't know there was necessarily a history to a lot of those records. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's just one of those things. I don't think, most things are not deliberate, right? They just happen the way they do. So I think that was very much one of those accidental things, like a lot of things, it's just organically happened. So Franco did do something good then? Apparently, yes. <laughs> yeah, he said you couldn't get chart records. Although, I mean, I'm not sure when Jose moved here because he was from Barcelona, but... Um, you know, I don't know what era that was ended in the 70s, I think. I'm guessing I'm not very good at The lady in the local shop uh, in San Carlos where I lived did actually give me an, uh, like a history about Franco when I was paying about a month ago, which was really interesting. I stayed for about half an hour in the shop and she told me all about it. But uh, yeah, so it, it, I guess it led to these more unusual records being here um, that he picked up. 
I did actually put that in my latest Substack letter all about Franco and his departure and what happened after that. So if you want to go and I'm going to plug that in this exact spot, if you want to go and sign up and read about when Franco really left uh, Ibiza, then um, do pop on to that and have a little look. I think, you know, I'd love to hear your best memory of Jose because obviously he sadly left us now and it was a, a very, you know... I think the whole island wept a little tear, really, as, as one of the legend, you know, one of the greats kind of, you know, left the island. Um, and obviously, you spent a lot of time together. I love this memory of, of him talking about, you know, the fact that he just couldn't get perhaps not necessarily what he needed, but maybe what people expected him to play. Um, so, you know, have you got any other good little memories rummaging around in the back of a record box in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, I mean, before I knew Jose, I used to hear him in Café del Mar. I guess on my, one of my earlier holidays here in 91, 92, 93, 94 were lovely years of writing down the names of a lot of records. Uh, he always used to, he used to DJ in Birmingham at a place where I was resident and I would really pester him because I obsessively bought his tapes and he would recognise me because I was always hassling him and he'd be in Birmingham playing with me and I'd be like, tape 22, side B, third track and then I'd sing what I wouldn't know was a Bob James record to him, Sign of the Times, one particular memory. And I'm singing this sort of jazz record to him and he's just laughing at me going, it's Bob James, now leave me alone. And and then the next time I'd see him, I would do it again. So I used to do that to him a lot, the poor guy. Um, but just, I used to love hanging out at his house before I managed him and when I managed him, it was it was uh, being in his record room with him going through stuff. I was a, just a big fan, you know? So um, I have a funny memory I think I put on an Instagram post when he died and it was he was playing me a Leo Sayer album once. <laughs> And there was a track called Easy to Love, which I don't think I knew at the time. And he, he said to me, is this Balearic? I said, it is if you play it, you know, why are you asking me? <laughs> it's like, you know, that's your thing. So I thought that was quite funny. And, you know, just hearing him, uh, you know, we did. Um, I remember hearing him, at, I think it was a four moon party in 95 at what was Blue Marlin or what was your manager when it was called Blue Marlin? I think that was amazing. And I think. When I managed him, we did a, a full moon party in Formentera once, which was wonderful. So, yeah, many, many great memories of hearing, uh, you know, hearing his records and obsessively writing down the names of them all. So when did you actually, um, you know, first start to come to the island? I mean, even just hearing stories about this full moon party in Formentera, I mean, you just wouldn't be able to do that now. So, I mean, it, the tragedy is real for, for us, you know, this modern generation. But you've obviously seen and witnessed things that are basically illegal these days because there's just so much restriction going on on the island now but you know what was it like when you first came here as a DJ? I mean when I I came here before way before I was DJing just family holidays and stuff Um, I think my mum and stepdad came here in the mid 80s on a holiday maybe I can't think when they got married maybe it was their honeymoon or something and um, they brought us here a couple of years later and I, I think it was 1987 and I was too young we stayed at the Tanit I was too young to go out, but my sister was going out, telling us how fantastic it was. I I didn't go beyond the hotel disco, Um, but there's a really good DJ who I actually got to know many, many years later, and he played loads of great records. In fact, I heard uh, Sven Vath's first record, Electric Salsa, by Off, and um, I got my mum to buy it me with my pocket money from the record shop in the square in San An. Um, So my first memory of was hearing a lot of what I now know to be quite sort of uh, well-known Balearic, more alternative sort of classic records of the time. But I guess being from Birmingham, that seemed very appealing and exotic and unusual. These sort of records with foreign, you know, I'd never heard a record probably with 
that wasn't English speaking before. So I think I found that very enticing. Um, um, and then a couple of years later, 1989, my sister dragged me and my brother out to Amnesia and S Paradise. So they were open air. And I remember it raining in S Paradise and thinking, wow, it's raining and I'm in a club. <laughs> So, yeah, I thought, though, you know, going to Coo and all those places without roofs was wonderful, I thought. It was really amazing. So, and we came in 1990 again on holidays. when I think we were old enough to come on our own then. So I always came every year until I got the job at Mambo in 96. And I guess by then, what was happening, you had, like, Manumission was doing really, really well. Um, and I guess the British clubs were was starting to do particularly well like nights like renaissance and death well death, death mix was american but ministry of sound was a pasha i recall um but there were still lots of you know there were still more lots of foreign nights as well that when we were djs we hadn't heard of so much i hadn't heard of so much a lot of italian djs playing i guess in in august mm-hmm. um so it was definitely I don't know. I mean, I, it's super varied now, right? You just all the clubs have roofs on generally, but then there's a lot more parties in villas and all sorts of stuff that people go to or on boats and stuff. So you can still find. I mean, I just I think it's really nice being outside. You know, there's something very nice about that. Again, when you're from Birmingham, dancing outside under the stars is a nice thing. So you know, so I, I think those early, early memories of of just being in clubs when it was raining. I remember being in Amnesia and the the floor was actually flooded in there and it was quite about a foot deep in water, I remember one time. Kind of in the cleanest water. A bit like the water in S Paradise, you know, they used to used to dance in the water and it was quite brown, I remember sometimes. Apparently they only changed it a couple of times a year. Um <laughs> so you needed to go early in the summer. But yeah, those were wonderful times for sure. You know, I remember hearing records like, I don't know, French Kiss in 1989 and no roof and yeah they're memories that made me want to be become a dj for sure but you say that you know this kind of rebellious statement right at the very beginning of the podcast that you, you you're just not the kind of guy that particularly wants to make people dance and i find that quite intriguing that's, only now, that's now i i used to enjoy that i mean now i because I, I don't i'm not a dj it's not my job anymore you know it hasn't been for about 12 years uh, it's my hobby um, I mean, I actually enjoy it more than I used to when it was my job, to be honest. But um, I have no interest in, I guess, pursuing a, a career to, as a DJ anymore at all. I just like playing records I like where I'm in a place where I'm allowed to play what I want. But why don't you want to do that anymore? That's what I'm asking. I don't know. Um, it's restrictive. And I don't... I'm really excited by new music. I do... I may discover old music, so to me it's new. And I do like the production of older records. But I'm not... I don't think there's enough great new music to want to play in a club. And also, I don't actually want to stay awake all night. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> I I don't enjoy that as much as I used to, you know. Um, so for me, finishing by midnight is ideal. <laughs> no, I just find that interesting. I mean, it, it, yeah, that's the crux of the issue is, like, yes, your lifestyle has changed quite dramatically. Yeah, I mean, you know, I haven't drunk for six years. I haven't taken drugs for 30 years or 29 years. So I am definitely behave much better than I used to. So naturally, wanting to be in a club all night is, you know, if I'm watching one of my artists play, I've probably gone to bed before for two hours um, and then I'll be able to stay awake or not and enjoy that. But yeah, it's just, it's it's less appealing. The, the sort of music I'm, you know, I I buy records every day still. 
you know, I'm obsessed with discovering music and the music I generally feel drawn to is a bit unusual and you wouldn't really get many people dancing. You know, I love it when people are, you know, you may be playing Sunset and people come up to you crying. They've had such an amazing experience with the music and the view. That for me is just as rewarding as playing to, you know, 60,000 people or whatever the biggest gig I ever would have done was. You know, I I actually enjoy playing a variety of music more than... It's, again, it's that thing, once you're playing 125 beats per minute, within reason, you need to sort of stay... I mean, the thing is, I wouldn't do that, and I would just play a drum and bass record in the middle of my set, and everybody would stop dancing. <laughs> and then I'd have to quickly revert back to what I was doing. Um, <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> that is why you're on this podcast. You are essentially, yeah, a reset rebel. You reset your whole path in this world, and that's why it's kind of interesting to have this conversation. So which which came first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, were you more obsessed with music before or after you kind of got into coming to Ibiza? Was it Ibiza that made you that way, or where did this uh, obsession begin yeah I mean I, I used to I had a tape recorder and I remember having a Nick Kershaw album for Christmas on cassette um, and I liked music at that point I think I had a Bon Jovi album what else so I liked music but I wouldn't have said I was utterly obsessed with it and then my sister gave me a, a cassette tape of the house sound of Chicago volume one which was a it was a Pete Tong compilation in 1986 so I'm like 12 or something like that, 13. And this utterly blew me away. I became really obsessed and would repeatedly listen to Mr. Fingers, Can You Feel It? and all the other tracks that, are, that were on that compilation. And that was a big turning point. Um, I would bring my sister's MIDI hi-fi into, um, into my bedroom. So I'd have her MIDI hi-fi and mine. I didn't know anything about DJing at this point, but I would make... And then I'd try and make tapes where I would record a record playing, then pause at, I guess it would have been maybe the end of a bar, even though I wouldn't know what a bar was at that point, and then put a different record on and then unpause the record at the beginning of a bar. As it would almost simulate crossfading. I don't know where that... I, I didn't had no awareness of DJ culture at this point. Um, but So that really got me into, into listening to music. But my sister was older than me, so... At this point, I wasn't buying music. And then um, I think 1989 here was the year hearing maybe French Kiss in Amnesia. Um, that made me obsessively start buying records. And I think I was a glass collector at the time at my local pub. And I could afford about four imports a week. So I would go to a shop in Birmingham called Don Christie's and buy um I was telling someone the story earlier, actually, but I, I missed my business studies exam to buy Frankie Knuckles' Your Love, my final exam. And um, I, of course, saw no reason not that that wasn't a good idea. Uh, and I became good friends with Frankie many years later, and uh, he was in Mambo when I was DJing once, and my mum was there, and I explained Frankie the story about this while my mum was there, which is quite funny. And he then signed my copy because I had it there, um, explaining I'd done the right thing. And uh, so, but, so coming here... When I got home from that holiday, I became a record buyer. I still hadn't thought about becoming a DJ. Um, I was a kid. I didn't see myself. I didn't picture myself as a grown-up who would DJ in a nightclub. I just I was too young to, to maybe view it that way. And then I started going to raves or the early raves. I was maybe I was very young doing that, but I I guess I would have been what six, 16, 17. So I would, my brothers and sisters were older than me, so I would go 
to like Amnesia House and the Eclipse in Coventry and all the early raves in Birmingham. And then we went to Shelley's in Stoke where Sasha started DJing. That was the turning point for me, hearing him being so much better than everybody I'd ever heard by a long, long way. That made me very interested in wanting to understand what he was doing because I found it most for most for me when I heard other DJs, a mix was the way to get to the next record. But the way I perceive what Sasha did was I, I understand what he was doing now, but I didn't at the time. But because he could mix in key before we had mixed in key and it was really easy and any idiot could do it, um, he was beautifully crafting the records together. And the magic bit was when he had two records playing at the same time. That was. You know, I went to school with Steve Lawler and we were all utterly inspired, blown away by, wow, this guy is so good. So that made us want to be DJs because we were so amazed with... And Dave Seaman was playing there as well. They were just so good. They were in a different league to the DJs I'd heard before. So that, I think, is what made me buy deck. Actually, I know, I think I already had my decks, but it got me into the idea that maybe I would possibly be a DJ. But then, of course, failing all my exams, couldn't get a job, didn't even try and get a job, in fact... Um, I started DJing and renting my equipment out. And before I knew it, I was earning a living at 17. So I sort of fell into not ever having a job. So that, I think that's kind of the order it probably happened in. I love these memories of like, yeah, playing with those tapes on two different MIDI hi-fis because that's actually exactly what I used to do. Not quite the way you did it, but my mum and dad used to take me away to South of France for like six weeks every summer and I'd become like a kind of radio obsessive listening to pirate radio listening to kiss fm on a saturday night in my room and i would tape everything obsessively and like file it away and then when i would go away in the summer before we could obviously get you know radio in other countries yeah would just take those tapes with me and just listen to them over and over and over and over again i'm like yeah i guess that's why i ended up also doing what i do but it's very interesting this whole memory of just thinking about how we all used to know exactly where those tapes were and you know even when i did radio college I was like splicing together bits of tape I was probably the last person on planet earth to study radio like in my sort of late teens early 20s and you know we're cutting bits of tape I mean it's just it's kind of hilarious when you think back on you know how times have changed obviously makes you also feel very old um but yeah that's just kind of amazing you know that obsession cutting tape I think the first time I went to a recording studio the idea of an edit would take half a day now it's like command e and again, highlight, delete, join together. You're done in three seconds. That was like two hours work <laughs> and you might do it wrong. You know, so it's, uh, I guess that reminds me of fixing cassette tapes. When I was young, I would, they would rip and you'd have to, I'd get them out on a piece of paper and you, then you'd like stick one the wrong way up and it'd be like, oh my God, then you have to try and peel it off the sellotape. So, um, but yeah, I used to do a similar thing. I think I, a lot of the music I heard at that point, my sister used to listen to PCRL, which was a radio station in Birmingham. So I would imagine that you were making kind of compilations, weren't you, without knowing it, of of music you, you know, it was like an early version of a Spotify playlist, essentially, but it was on a cassette tape. I mean, I've got hundreds and hundreds of cassette tapes because I went back to Solihull, where I'm from, about two weeks ago, and I'd not left here for a year because we moved back here from living in Dartmoor and all our stuff's at my mum's house in her garage. So I went and... I wanted to kind of reduce my record collection again. I keep trying, but um, it's taking a long time. But um, I found on my cassette tapes because I recorded everybody who played at Mambo. So I've got hundreds of tapes and then hundreds of tapes. I used to record all my sets at Mambo and I used to duplicate them and sell them. Wow. 
Um, so I used to make a living back then. Um, so yeah, it was incredible. I love tapes actually. They sound wonderful. They sound so warm. I, I do love tapes. So uh, I, I have always kept them all. <laughs> what the hell are we going to do? We like the Wombles of Wimbledon of the of the tape variety. It's quite ridiculous. I don't think I've got any of mine left, and I don't even know what I'd play them on, even if I did have them. I think actually at TEDx, as you were just admiring the wonderful uh, large red letters sitting in the corner of the podcast studio, um, there's a guy giving a talk. He's a musicologist, and um, he's one of my speakers on the speaker committee. He's coming from Australia, and one of the things that he's going to do when he starts to talk about musicology is get out his Walkman. And I was just like, what, you still got a Walkman? I mean, they've bought out a new one. Have you seen it, the Sony one? Uh, no, I mean, I I was thinking yesterday when I was doing some gardening that it would be nice. I don't want to have a device necessarily with Wi-Fi on. And I was thinking, my God, I should have bought my I- iPod, was it called? I used to have the really big iPod. And I, I think I've got the... I mean, I'm guessing it would still work, but it... It's just so hard to find a device that doesn't have Wi-Fi. I don't want necessarily to have Wi-Fi devices, so that's the that's the only. But yeah, I think you had to. It would copy a sync iTunes playlist, right? It's been a while, so yeah, I I love them, and I used to have. I guess I remember the first year I started at Mambo, I didn't actually have any friends in Ibiza, and everyone around me, I sort of saw these groups of friends that all knew each other like Brandon and Alex and all these people that used to come there and I didn't know anybody. And I used to just like buy the paper and take my Walkman and I'd walk up to actually where La Torre is now, which was, was there then. And I used to just sit on the edge of the cliff and have like a picnic, read the paper and listen to my Walkman. Uh, I think it was a CD Walkman. Is that called a Walkman? Is that? Um, but yeah, and I think I have, oh no, it's a dictaphone. I have a little small tape, tape thing. But yeah, I, I, I love those. I like the idea of not having so much choice there's too much choice it's why i like djing out of a record box because just you know even back in the day i'd take about 14 boxes of records to mambo which seemed excessive i mean i'd leave them in there every night but i would bring that many to ibiza and that seemed like it was a talking point be like wow pete's got so many records with him but now that's like how many what's that it's not it's about 1200 records that's that's nothing but there's too many choices so it's harder to I, I, you know, I think less choices is, is better. And if you've got to buy the records, they have to be good, or you wouldn't bother buying them. Mm-hmm. So I, I quite like the idea of having, you know, a Walkman with one CD in it or a tape that can only have ninety minutes of music on it. I quite like that. And I, there were lots of records I maybe didn't have on vinyl, and I'd recorded them off the radio, and I'd actually play them from a, a, a cassette, like a tape deck, and just put that through the mixer instead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the modern day, uh, you know, all this kind of cheating that goes on with like people with the kind of plug in, uh, you know, sticks and things. I mean, it's just crazy. But I like this idea also that you say about having a limited option list, because I'm assuming that if things are moving in a particular direction with the way things are now, you've got always that added extra of like, oh, I could just zip on and, and download X or Y or Z or, you know, play something from, you know, that's online rather than, you know, slipping that in there. Whereas if you already got a definitive amount of items in your box or, you know, as you say, on your um, on your list, then you can't chop and change your mind and read the crowd in the same way. Yeah, I, you know, every time I... Every time I DJ, I generally find it quite stressful because I don't necessarily sort out what's on my memory stick. So when I do play stuff on a memory stick, I kind of know the folders off by heart to a degree because I have quite a photographic memory. But there's no, I, there's no, like, there's a lot of records I didn't maybe write necessarily write all the correct information. 
and it's hard identifying stuff at a glance or even if I buy new music I don't digest the names immediately of every record and I've never understood how to use record box I'm not particularly I'm not into technology that much so I've never worked out how to exactly see the information correctly so just whatever appears appears and I have to hope I generally remember it whereas when you're in your record box it's like okay there's the one with the blue cover with the picture of that on the front and I can see what it's called um, I, I, I just find that's more appealing <laughs> to be honest because otherwise I might have thousands I mean I'm sure thousands of songs on a memory stick it's like sometimes I don't know where to choose so you're almost a bit overwhelmed by choice so you I'm often just frozen thinking bugger I'll just put a CD on I mean I actually I played at the Standard Hotel last Saturday and I took a box of records, a huge box of CDs. I mean, nobody even takes a box of CDs anywhere. And I spent most of the night just playing those because it's a, a, a more limited choice. So you can get to what you're looking for a lot quicker, I find. Talk to us about, you know, obviously last year you made a compilation for Hostella Torre and with a friend of yours. And obviously you were talking about, you know, having this job at Mambo, you know, back in the 90s. and. <laughs> Alex and uh, Brandon were knocking around. I'd like to have been there to see that. Obviously, I've had Brandon on the podcast before, so I have heard some of those crazy stories. can only imagine what happened uh, during that period of time. But, you know, you're still playing at La Torre, which is owned, I think, by the Mambo Brothers. So what's your, you know, what's it like working with them or for them? Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, I mean, I got the job there when I was 21 and I'm 49 now, so it's quite a long time, actually. And... Yeah, it was great. I mean, I didn't see Javi so much in the beginning, to be honest. Um, and the boys were really young, like they were at school. Um, Alan was super cheeky. I think he was about nine when I met him. <laughs> um, but no, it's great. I mean, you know, I've known them all such a long time. Um, and when Javi bought Latour, I was a big fan of Latour. Actually, Jose took me there because he did his album launch. He had an album called Navigator. I think he did the launch there in 2001. And my first holiday, um, staying at the Tanit, me and my brother used to, I think we maybe used to walk or cycle up there. Maybe we'd rented some bikes. And I always used to go and find that, you know, that little viewing platform just before it. So I always knew where, I didn't know what it was called, but I always knew that place. And I used to sit there a lot. So when Javi got that, um, he just started, said, look, do you want to sort out, you can, I guess, be musical director for, sounds a very grand title for someone who just chooses who DJs there. But, and then the idea was that we would just set up our own label and do the compil- do some comp- do a compilation um, so we did that with a guy called Mark Barrett who actually when I was managing Jose we, Mark had for me the best label in the world called International Feel and we managed to sign Jose to him so we made that a great album uh, called So Many Colours for Jose on Mark's label so me, Mark and Javi start- started the label and again there's no there's no formula to how often we do it but we did the first one in 2016 we did another one the year after then we waited two years then we waited three years and then we just decided the other day not to do one this year just there's such a great response to it and it's kind of a hobby and it's kind of nice waiting in a way and uh, you know making it as special as we can really um, but normally it's still always a last minute panic and I'm trying to clear everything just in time and uh, but it's great fun I mean I love having an idea and then physically holding the finished copies or oh, I love that it's great and yeah they sell for like 100 quid on Discogs now but you know we we didn't uh, none of the is a sort of deliberate idea to make them scarce we just we press a thousand they sell pretty quick every year and that's it really it's 
it's um it's more of a labor of love than a, a, a business idea you know it's it doesn't make us any money it's uh, we we do it we do you have the the nicest vinyl the best cutting engineer in europe does it we have the thickest spines on the sleeves you know we just make a really desirably lovely product that we would like and that's it really you know it's it's, it's a lovely thing to do though are you going to be playing back at La Torre this summer? Yeah, um, I for sure. I mean, I play them in the winter. I mean, I, I don't. I try not to DJ that often, to be honest. So I really enjoy it as a hobby. So I DJ normally at Pikes a little bit, or and La Torre a little bit. Um, I play in Bali still. I do the odd, the occasional festival, but I kind of reduce it down all the time. I, you know, I don't want to do it every week you know it's not i want to really enjoy it and i don't want it to feel like my job so i don't do it that often on purpose you even ran away recently and left us and went to england but <laughs> you, you couldn't you couldn't stay away yeah well um i came here in 2015 i mean i've been back and forth a lot i i lived here all year round for the first time in 2010 um i'm not sure why i think i've maybe recently broke broken up with a girlfriend at the time and then my friend was living here, so I lived with him, and it was great. And then I tried it again when I started the management company. I moved here in 2013 for about, I don't think, I was only here for about a year, and I ended up managing an, a bigger artist who was based in London, so I thought I should move back there. And then I came back in 2015 to have a meeting with Mark Barrett about, maybe about Jose's album. And the day I arrived, Mark's mom was sick, and he left and asked if I could hang on. And... Um, my old flatmate said, hey, no one's in the flat. You stay as long as you like. And then I, a friend of mine said, you could rent an office in Casa del Rey, was it called? And I met Jade, who's now my wife. So I stayed for five years. Um, and she was looking for a more alternative school for Silva, her daughter. So all of her family were living near Dartmoor. So we just decided for no good reason, just, you know, give it, we tried to give it a go. There were loads of great schools there and we loved it. Like it was really living in Dartmoor was amazing, and then of course within reason, a couple of months after we moved, COVID was sort of beginning. We'd just been to Asia on holiday, actually, to Bali, in fact, um, and it was clear what that it, something was going to happen that was pretty big. And yeah, it was just like an amazing place to spend that time. To be honest, I mean, we literally didn't live near anybody in a valley it was just absolutely beautiful so it was a great amazing place to be mm. swimming in the sea freezing cold sea i was something new i discovered which was great fun but yeah i loved it i we had no um we had never thought to come back actually it was a very last minute thing one of my artists last year was going to do a residency and we would have to kind of run the event so i said i would come back and do that so we came back with the intention of just coming for four months and then the day literally the second we landed i just looked at jane and said she was staying she's like yeah but let's see what silver thinks because silver was born here anyway and within a week she started saying things like you know i want to come back i want to stay it's my home and it's like okay fine we're done and then we had to move out of our house and then moved everything to my mom's garage and then we we moved nine times in 13 months. It was really stressful. But we found a house in the countryside just uh, outside San Carlos and moved in in November. And then we're back again. So, yeah, it's like a, like a yo-yo. I keep trying to leave and we keep coming back. But, it, you know, I like variety as well. So it's quite nice 
that we, we you know Jay's family are there so we, we got to see a lot of them and uh, I'd never even been to Dartmoor to be honest so it was quite a, a shock but it was yeah it was, it was very nice. When you landed back and you looked at each other and you said shall we stay I mean what what was what was that moment how can you describe what it is about Ibiza that just sucks you straight back in again? You know I I think I always recalled loving going on holiday as a child and I guess I don't know what what was specific about Ibiza but I guess because I kept coming back here and not coming back to other I mean I guess because I was into the music and the scene and wanted to be a DJ it was the place to come obviously but um I guess when I was a DJ I traveled so much I sort of toured for about 18 years every week really that nowhere was like nowhere felt like home and the only place I repeatedly came back to was here because I was from Solihull but I moved and spent about 10 years in London and then I've spent maybe about 15 years here in total so it's the only it feels more like home than anywhere else and it, it does to Jade she spent a block of about 10 years here until we left as well so I think and Silver being born here you know it just it, it is home really uh, again I've got a lot of memories of stuff here but it's just the one place we always come back to really so it's the same for all of us. So where do you go on the island? Now you're living in uh, San Carlos, quite quite close to Las Dalias, I can imagine. But, you know, what is that one special place um, that, you know, you just cannot kind of avoid when you really kind of like get back into your normal Ibiza rhythm? Yeah, I mean, we used to live really close to where we live now, like maybe 500 metres away from our old house. Um, that valley, you know, that orange juice shop, I don't know what it's called, on the San... Juan, no, the San Juan Road to San. There's a beautiful valley behind there, which I love walking in. So I used to walk the dog there a lot. Um, Pudasleo, I know that's not how you pronounce it. I get told off by my friend Brett, who speaks very good Spanish. I can't even pronounce it correctly, but um, I love there as well because there's no. It sounds like I hate tourist stuff. It's just quiet. It's not that you know you you get so stuck in traffic, right? I generally unless it's for work I don't tend to go very south in the summer because it's too busy so I ended up finding lots of things local you know we're super close I think Aguas Blancas is probably the closest beach so just places that are really in nature super quiet I'm very happy anywhere like that to be honest I just you know even as a kid I loved being in nature Um, my nan had woods at the bottom of her garden and I always lived in Richmond or Kew when I lived in London because it was just a bit near you know the green belt I guess a bit more so yeah I just like being in nature really it's and I swim every day or paddleboard every day as well so that's anywhere I can do that I'm very happy I mean what are you actually I mean if there's anything that you've seen coming up this summer I mean, is there anything specific that you might have noticed that you're looking forward to and thought oh I might just venture out for that um I mean I go out a lot because my artists play here a lot um generally so I'm sometimes about three nights a week actually going to clubs anyway but um i really quite fancied hearing sven vath playing in the garden at akasha as well as inside because i mean i've been a fan of his for well since my first holiday there you go um and i'd recently bought his album the music i used to play which is a great album of again i loved belgian newbie and there's loads of that loads of it on there um so i would love to hear him do something a little more alternative not sure that he's going to but in the garden i think that would be amazing um, I always love to go and see uh, Harvey. Um, that's fantastic. So, but I don't really know 
beyond what my own artists are doing. I'm not really sure, to be honest, what's going on. I don't know if I've paid that much attention to it yet. I still, in my head, it's still winter, although I know it's changing now, which is wonderful, actually, as well. But um, I'm not that aware of what's going on yet, necessarily, so I don't know. I interviewed Sven Vath on his uh, 50th birthday, actually, at a beach house, and, I, and it was only recently I've started to following him on the socials, but... I don't know. He's like sort of Peter Pan. He seems to be getting younger and um, Benjamin Button style. And he's got this really hot girlfriend and like he's looking ripped. And I was just like, what is going on with Sven? He's looking he's looking amazing. And I also bought a ticket to see him last summer at Akasha, but I just couldn't quite pluck up the old energy levels to actually go and attend, which was very annoying. So I spent quite a lot of money on that ticket. But this summer, I think his first gig is actually next month in that venue. Yeah, I think he's doing quite a few, I think. Think I don't. I think well, certainly he's doing it regularly. I don't know, but yeah, I, I would definitely, um, I would definitely go. I think when, once it gets to sort of July and August, I generally don't go to much beyond what my artists are doing because it's just generally exhausting. You know, I, I do a lot of work in the day, obviously as a manager, and then when you're up late, then it affects not getting much stuff done the next day as well. And as I'm generally a lot healthier than I used to be, I'm, I'm not drinking obviously or doing anything else, so I. Um, you know, I tend to go to sleep before the gig just so I can stay awake. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think what else is. Um, I mean, one of the nicest things I did last year was um, Luke Una was playing for Harvey. That was fun. That was fantastic music. Um, really, really good. I'm a big fan of Luke's radio show. So hearing anybody that I'm a actually David Holmes uh, played for me at La Torre as well. That was amazing. I love having him play. So anything. Anything I can't hear on a weekend, you know, something that happens occasionally that is a special occasion, I'm always a bit a big fan of sort of discovering stuff like that. Is, is that Luke from the Unabombers? Yeah, I mean, just amazing. I'd, I'd, I'd actually, um, I'd never, I'd heard of the Unabombers years ago. I'm not from Manchester, so it wasn't a party I ever went to, Electric Chair, but um, but I definitely, I heard his radio show in lockdown, the first first one. And I was like, wow, this guy is incredible and he's such a character. He's so funny. And I would message him quite regularly and just tell him I love the show and I became quite friendly with him. And I, so I went to see him last year. And yeah, just unbelievable taste in music. Just uh, like him and Harvey on the same night for me is like, is heaven basically. So yeah, really, really good. Mm. Yeah. I interviewed him as well, actually, for a project I was making for San Miguel for their Hidden Depth series, a music series that went around England. And I, yeah, I did like a TV thing with him, but I haven't seen him for about 15 years. So I'd love to see him again if he's coming back to play in Ibiza. You've obviously had an amazing radio show and, you know, made radio programs for a really long time. And I was a little bit sad to see the worldwide FM um, go, uh, you know, t- draw to a close. Can you can you tell us why why that was? I actually have no idea. <laughs> uh, I genuinely have absolutely no idea. I mean, we, I think Mark had done some stuff with, or Giles was a big fan of Mark's Sketches from an Island albums that he did a long time ago. And I think Mark got us to stand in for Giles or something. That I think that's the first time we did something. So we got Pippi and Alfredo and Javi roped into, basically, we just did like a an interview. I mean, I, I'm not, I love doing radio, but I'm not a fan of doing live radio. I tend to go to pieces and say the wrong thing or <laughs> or I wish I could have said it better. Like I never feel that comfortable doing it live, but I'm aware that it's a, a lovely thing to do it live because I tend to put the music together, record my links and then perfectly put them in and produce them. And it sounds a bit too polished. 
um, like a, again, you know, it, it can sometimes miss some of the character. I think the mistakes are a good thing, but I just I don't think I ever got that comfortable with doing it. Um, I, it's actually funny. I, I met Eddie Gordon, who was Pete Tong's old manager when I was twenty-one, maybe my first year at Mambo, and he really mentored me. And I used to go down to his office where him and Pete had their office. And I would read Pete's scripts from the week before and maybe occasionally Pete would come in and then I'd be fumbling my way through one of his essential mix or essential selection scripts, doing it really badly and just think, God, this is embarrassing. Get me out of here. <laughs> and um, and I found it very hard. And it, again, the girl I was with at the time was a, a, a voiceover artist. So she was amazing at it. And a friend of mine was also a voiceover artist. So they would really help me. But Eddie got me to sort of understand the different moods you could talk in so maybe a little more intimate getting closer or maybe speaking quicker or more slowly and so with fluorescent markers I'd have to identify the move the mood of say a paragraph maybe I'd take a DJ magazine and just highlight it and then I'd have to try and speak it and then listen back in a dictaphone and it was painful and in the beginning I I was over pronouncing it so I sounded like Tony Blackburn it was like hi you know really overdoing it and then I would be really wooden and it would be monotone and it took years to be able to, I think relax and talk normally when someone puts a mic in front of you because in the beginning it's a hard thing to do right you don't you can sound very uninteresting to listen to so I loved I loved doing it um and I start so Eddie was getting me to sort of learn how to do a radio show and Eventually, I started a show with uh, a guy called Phil Doherty, who was a producer called Future Shock, um, who is from the same town. We ran a club together when I left school. So we started a show, which I ended up syndicating myself, and it got like over 200 stations. And that's so I then ended up, years later, started a syndication business. Um, but from there, I'm trying to think I did shows on Sonica. And then, yeah, the Worldwide FM thing just... That was a sporadic thing, though. We did it for years, but it, we only did about five a year, maybe, which I quite liked. It wasn't so often that it was like a, you know, a job or or a thing that I would sort of not get round to doing on time. So it was it's an it was a nice thing to do. So yeah, no idea why it stopped. I, I would imagine it must have been a funding thing. I, I would imagine it costs money to run the building. There was plenty of staff that worked there, and I, I assume naturally there was the funding wasn't there. But I don't know whether it means it won't be in the future. I don't know. I mean, it's a great station. You know, it's a, I really enjoyed being part of it because I discovered a lot of other great presenters like Antal from Rush Hour who religiously listened to his show as well. I mean, I, I think I had to thank Antal and Luke for all the records I, I heard on their shows that ended up going on the Tory album. <laughs> but, you know, we all hear music from someone, right? You, that's how you discover it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've been... I've come up with a new concept for a radio show, but then I've got not done anything about it. I've made the first one. It's about four hours long. Um, so, I, yeah, but I haven't decided to do anything about it yet. But I, it's just finding the right station to do it on or can I be bothered to do it myself or, you know, yeah, I haven't, I haven't thought it through yet. But you're not making the syndicated radio show anymore? No, uh no, I, I haven't actually. No, I, that's been quite a few years probably since I did that. Um, but I did it weekly for, I don't know, about 10 years, which it was great. You know, I absolutely loved it. And it's it's quite a discipline. It makes you discover music. It keeps you on top of the music when you've got to find enough music. Um, but so because it's not my job, doing a show like every quarter would probably be ideal for me, really, I think. That would be enough. 
Sloth Radio, if you're listening. <laughs> get in touch with Pete Gooding. Listen, I cannot believe we've been talking for an hour already. It, the time has actually literally just slipped by, as uh, it often does in this little uh, rabbit hutch of a, of a podcast studio. Thank you very much for, for coming to meet me here. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear all these wonderful tales from uh, the years gone by. And no doubt... I'll see you very soon, um, either on the dance floor at Akasha with Sven Vaith or, um, yeah, down at Hostel Latori watching a wonderful sunset. I'm saying it's a good job I didn't have a new book to promote or something, isn't it? <laughs> I'd have just totally forgotten to promote it. But yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I will see you uh, over the summer, yeah. It's the It's the It's the Hello, this is Sven Fade, and you are listening to Essential Radio right now at Beach House, right in Bossa. I'm giving my pre-birthday party here a little warm-up to um, get my closer friends from Ibiza here united, and yeah, we want to have a nice party. We do indeed, and it's uh, it's shaping up rather nicely out there, but we're actually currently located in the showers of Beach House, which I'm very grateful that you would uh, step into my cubicle. <laughs> no, but um, I love this place, I have to say. It's, uh, it's a really special place, and as you as you were uh, seeing the weather situation the last couple of days, uh, uh, it was crazy in this morning when it was ra- raining so much. We were like, oh, is this going on today or not? And then there was this huge rainbow... Did you saw it? I did, yeah, it's gorgeous. I was, I was like, wow, that's the positive side of it now. Look at sky, blue skies. I think we're going to have a lot of fun now here. And uh, People come, come, come. It's open. <laughs> that's what happens with the birthday boys in town, though. Like, the, the, you know, the sunshine queen comes out and, and the, you know, the wonderful weather follows. So that's basically why your birthday party is, is pretty ramadammed out there, actually, by all accounts. <laughs> pretty ramadammed. <laughs> Ramajam, <laughs> not Ramadan. Okay, Ramajam. <laughs> not get confused here. <laughs> I'm glad about that. Um, but, and we're also going to party on uh, later after this tonight in kilometer five. So just to let you know. Absolutely. I mean, Apollonia, or best part of rocking the decks right now mm-hmm. here at the beach house. And next up, obviously, the birthday boy will be taken to the decks. What can we expect from your set this evening? Slightly different change of scene yeah, in terms so of the... My, my, my kind of uh, after hours, the beach beach uh, sound. Oh, it's groovy, trippy, with emotions. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's the, the closing party of Cocoon on Monday. So yeah. I guess this is kind of limber up to your, obviously, big birthday, the yeah. big 50th, but also this big soiree on Monday at Amnesia. Yes, I mean, we, are, we just had a big Monday, actually, uh, last Monday. And uh, we had a, an excellent season. I'm really happy. We're doing so good. And it shows that 15 years of Cocoon in Ibiza, uh, people really appreciate the quality we we. we we serve and uh, the, the music we are um, full on concentrating on is, is, is the quality and it's the, it's, it's the party style, lifestyle we're living and uh, I think that's what the people appreciate and I think the closing is going to be the huge bomba and then of course the after hour. Of course, I think it would be rude not to really. <laughs> yeah but it's a, it's a signature of Cocoon right? The nice after hours and uh, yeah so we will see. The 48-hour cocoonathon. Yeah. 
I mean, what, you know, this is going to be a big night on Monday. Obviously, it's been a spectacular season. But what, what have you actually got planned for Monday? No plan. <laughs> That's the plan. The best plan is no plan. No plan. Just go with the flow and go with the feeling. Expect the unexpected. Exactly. <laughs> Thank Amazing. You. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining us and a massive happy birthday to you. Thank you. For all your essential Ibiza offers and discounts on villas, car hire and beyond, exclusive access to parties and clubs on the island, get the essential Ibiza offers app now. For the full lowdown on what's happening this season in Ibiza, hit essentialibiza.com. You are listening to Essential Ibiza Radio.